Sister Podcast. I'm Andy Murphy and I'm from the Navajo Nation. I have a special episode for you. Earlier this month, I visited a sheep camp with Aretta Begay. She's Dene and she's the director of Dene Beina or Navajo Lifeway. It's a nonprofit group dedicated to preserving sheep culture on the Navajo Nation. You'll hear more about this group and about Navajo churro sheep, but I'd like to get to it right away, so here we go. So it's a cloudy Friday. It's um, completely overcast. We haven't really seen the sun so far. And we are, um, I say we because I'm with my my parents. They're driving out here with me to Ron's uh, sheep camp. And his sheep camp is located uh, about uh, northwest of the actual Shiprock. So it's really beautiful country out here. You can see the Shiprock in the background. Uh, you can see just miles and miles all around. And um, we're, we're traveling on a, a bumpy road right now and we're following Aretta to this place. So uh, we'll be there in just a bit, but I'm pretty excited. I've never really been to a, a sheep camp before, but um, it's, a, it's very beautiful so far. Beautiful drive. After visiting with the sheep at the corral, I sat down with Daisy Garnanez in an old hogan, a traditional house structure. It didn't have a roof. Uh, it looked like the trailer next to it is where everyone hangs out and sleeps. Uh, Daisy is 89 years old, and she's been a sheep herder all her life. Yeah, I like the sheep so much. My cousins, like they, they all, my life, I, li- I like them. I like them. Like... Like the way you love your kids. <laughs> 200 of them, right? More than 200. One time we, we had a 1,500. We shared 1,500. You were telling me just a while ago that um, you, you did uh, three years of school and then uh, your parents wanted you back to sh- herd sheep. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. When I went to school only for three years, because my dad told me, in three years, you, you learn a lot. So he just gave me only three years. I learned a little bit and then came back and uh, there's a sheep, he told me, so just taking the sheep again. <laughs> what What is your favorite part about uh, sheep herding? I know you were talking about the lambs, right? Yeah, I love the little lamb. We holding them when they were small. When I heard the sheep in the evening, two sheep I, I come back with the sheep. Then I lay down in the corral flat. Then the little baby walk on you, on your bed, my <laughs> I love that part. 
And one time they beat one gut on me. <laughs> they was <were so> hard. <laughs> Next, I talked with Ron Garnanez, Daisy's son. These are his sheep, and he's the president of Denebe Ina. I am Tratchitni and Tordichitni and Bitlizadalchi and um, Lashchi. Those are my four clans. I am from Oak Spring and Shiprock area where my sheep camps are. And I was born into the sheep camp, I guess. Um, I remember hearing sounds of sheep crying when I was a baby. And when I grew up, I started herding sheep with my grandmother. She taught me a lot of how you interact with the sheep. And the breed of sheep that I have are called the Navajo Choro. And in Navajo, we call them Tatepe. These were our original breed of sheep before the uh, Western civilization came in. I still have them. When my great-grandmother died, there was only five of them left. I switched uh, the breed over to her breed uh, from the five and um, went all the way up to 500 head. But because of the drought, I had to reduce them back to 150. She's the reason why I'm keeping this uh, breed of sheep, because of her stories of the sheep. When the soldiers entered Canyon Deshay um, to round them up for the long walk, her father took her and her two sisters to the brim of the canyon and told them to run and don't come back. And they had a sheep corral at the top of the canyon, so only few of the sheep were willing to go with them, so they took those sheep with them. She said, like, somewhere around 15. They fled into Utah, across the San Juan River, and uh, went into canyon lands. She said the sheep helped her escape from the soldiers because when the soldiers were getting closer, um, the sheep would start to get nervous and move away, and they just followed where the sheep went, even at night. So she always told us to take care of them, and that's the reason why I have the Navajo sheep. And there's very few of them left. They're a unique breed of sheep that <clears throat> is very interesting to work with because they're only a step away from their wild cousin. And if you don't have their chant and their prayers and their ceremonies, they can become wild again. So for that reason, we uh, maintain having the ceremonies for them. So <clears throat> that's to tell your animal that, hey, you belong to me. You don't belong to the holy people, like the deer, the buffalo, the elk. Our stories say they belong to the holy people, and the sheep was given to us. You know, we use their wool, we use their meat and their hide, 
And even their horns. You know, there's people that are always looking for um, horns also, and um, especially artists that um, work with um, natural things to do their artwork. And um, <clears throat> we take them up into the mountains every summer. It, it's like a two-day walk uh, from the desert to the top of the mountain. It's like 10 to 15 degrees difference. So when it gets too hot here and the wells uh, start to dry up, that's when we start moving to the mountain. And we'll stay there all summer until October, and that's when we'll bring them back down into the desert. We have several places that we camp with them for a month to two months at a time. So um, we still try to do it the pastoralist ways that our ancestors did before. That's how they took care of their land when they had thousands and thousands of sheep. And here we only have, you know, less than a thousand were dealing with um, drought. The drought and the uh, overgrazing they say it's overgrazing. There's um, when they had sheep by the thousands, you didn't see overgrazing here. But then the number had dwindled so far down. Very few people have sheep anymore because the value of money has gone down and um, it's hard to maintain a herd of sheep. Some areas where don't have much grass for their animals, so they have to resort to buying alfalfa, corn, you know, whatever they can feed their animals, but that gets very expensive. Um, you have to drive at least an hour to get uh, your supplies for your sheep, and some people even drive further than that. Since I, I follow the pastoralist ways, I really don't have to buy any hay or any feed for them, so I try to keep mine as natural as they can be for the taste of the meat. And it, uh, the meat is really good. Their fleece is dry, drier than the commercial breed, so you don't taste the landlin. Uh, that's what makes it a very muttony taste and and it stays in your mouth. <laughs> Whereas with the churro, um, it's different. Yeah, they're, they're a leaner meat, um, and they still taste really good. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so one of the questions I want to ask you is, um, I know you're talking about how uh, people are not um, herding sheep as much as they used to a long time ago. Uh, where do you see sheep and sheep culture, sheep herding, where do you see that going in the future? As a matter of fact, where I'm at behind Shiprock, there used to be like 10 big herds of sheep around, and now I'm the only one in the area. People move into town um, into cities further away to uh, look for jobs. And then um, the grazing permit is uh, another hindrance also. Only few grazing permits are out. There's 
like one per family um, that were lucky enough to get it. And then now they're feuding over who should have the permit. But I understand the federal or the BIA has not approved to further these grazing permits. So a lot of the grazing permits are pending now. So uh, we don't know as far as um, how BIA is going to, uh, you know, if they're going to allow us to keep to, to still keep sheep here on the reservation. But we don't view sheep as uh, a source of meat, a source of food, or clothing, or, you know, weaving. Sheep have their special place. They are sacred animals and um, given to us. Um, and um, it's a gift from the God. <clears throat> they have their, their, their chant. They have their sacred name. It belongs in the the Blessing Way ceremony. Their their songs are part of the Blessing Way ceremony. As long as we maintain that, there's still hope for the sheep in the future. Mm-hmm. All right. Um. So today's Friday. Uh, tomorrow you're going to start uh, shearing sheep, and there's how many sheep up there? About 350. About 350. How long does it take, and what does sheep shearing look like? Um, <clears throat> sheep shearing, it can be you by yourself only, or it can be a big party that will get together to do this, and... Um, through the years, um, it has always been me and my mother were the only ones that sheared. Uh, even when we had like 900 goats, we would do it all by ourselves. And um, it was amazing how my mother was able to keep up with all of that. And uh, <clears throat> she's 89 now, and she likes to see the animals. And... Um, once in a great while, she'll come out uh, to look after the animals um, with somebody else. And so we try to keep her in as involved with it also. And it makes her healthy. So and that's the way I see it. My grandmother was the same way. It made her healthy. And she died at a, the age of 110. And so she worked sheep all her life, and that's where uh, I learned a lot from her how to raise sheep, how to treat them with medicinal herbs, and where to bring them at what time of the year to deworm them, and things like that, you know, that they've learned from their ancestors. They would always take their sheep back towards the mountain in the winter, somewhere around November, December, and even into January, um, because of the sage, the, the juniper, the pinion, the cliff rose, all of those are very bitter plants, and that's what they use to deworm their animals with. Every time we move to a different sheep camp, 
The first thing that we do is build a fire. Um, that's for the sheep, to let the sheep smell the smoke and and then they'll get the idea that, okay, we're staying here. These are things that I've learned from my grandmother. You know. I see there are uh, more than sheep here. There's a couple of dogs, and there's a big white dog named Ice. Can you tell me about uh, sheep dogs? How how important are they, and um, where where do they fit within this uh, this sheep culture? Are they also a gift from uh, the holy people? Um, yes. Um I've always heard stories from my elders that dogs were sacred at one time. They helped transport belongings and they used them like horses. Most of uh, my sheep dogs are all stray dogs. They just took to the uh, to the sheep because certain dogs, it's bred into them, and they know what their job is. So that's how I found my sheepdog, is um, somebody threw them out uh, out along the road and bring them back over here. And they help um, protect uh, them from coyotes, bears, and bobcats, mountain lions we have around here. Mm-hmm. Aretta Begay is the director of Diné Beina. It's with her help that I was able to connect to the Garnanez family. Her purpose is to preserve Navajo culture and traditional food. Yat Aisha A. Aretta Begay is she adult is a son in Nishla, is she him by Shin, Tachini Dashiche, David Ane Dashanala. Isnas Bonste, Isi Nasha. And I reside in Tisansmas, Arizona. And I currently work for the nonprofit organization called uh, Denebeina or Navajo Lifeway. I serve as the director and project coordinator for a lot of the programs that we do. We're here with Ron, and he has a flock of churro sheep. Um, and he told me about the specialness of the sheep. But can you just build on that a little bit more? What What is it about churro sheep to, um, that that uh, is part of the focus of your nonprofit there? Uh, to build on Ron's information that he gave previous uh, to this interview, he mentioned that the churro breed has, you know, been part of our uh, pastoral way of life. It's been um, part of our ancestral history in terms of food, clothing, um, and everything else that comes from the animal. It's a multi-purpose breed. It's got a dual fleece layer. Uh, it's got a soft undercoat and a really long outer coat. So they have the ability to adapt in extreme weather conditions. You could, um, they could be lambing in the middle of the winter, and uh, they're very low-maintenance animals. So a lot of the animals are used that give uh, birth to the lambs. They're able to survive in extreme conditions, and the mother, like Ron had mentioned, that the sheep itself is closest to its wild cousins or just a near uh, it still has its wild instinct so to speak so it has that ability to kind of think and survive in those extreme weather conditions out here in the southwest so that makes them unique in the first place they could be hunted they could um they might they can pretty much uh, maneuver outmaneuver a predator at any moment uh, if they needed to they could uh, survive off of very little water and forage although the navajo sheep producers or the navajo sheep ranchers majority have you know treated their animals just like 
a relative or a human being, you know, because sheep has always been held sacred to a certain point that you have to care and care for the animal and the land itself. So you have to really kind of nurture the animal and make sure that they're they're fed and grazed in areas where their well-being and their birthing cycles and everything are in, in you know it makes it it makes it easier for their livelihood and and so they can um, flourish more and produce more offsprings where are the origins uh, of these sheep well it depends on two perspectives um, I've been aware of you can uh, follow the European or the American um, history of the sheep where it came from Spain and then eventually migrated into Mexico and then and ventured into our southwest regions via through the uh, Franciscan fathers and the friars that had moved through the missions along the Mexican border all the way up into what we currently call modern-day New Mexico and Arizona. So there's different uh, stories where um, there's four different phases where the Navajo Toro were introduced into different areas in the southwest. So that's how the sheep came into our region and how we were able to acquire that sheep and, and our ancestors had that ability to understand the breed and rebred it, the churro, into a churro, Navajo churro. So that's where the name comes from. If you take uh, the perspective of the oral stories of the Navajo people, you hear that the sheep were provided for us or were created when we were able to be, we were ready for that animal. There are creation stories where it mentions that the deities had formed the sheep and brought it to our region and given to us when we are ready to weave and we are ready to utilize the animal in, its, in all the purposes that we use it today. Clothing, textile, food, tools, whatever you could use out of the sheep. So Ron's flock here, the the uh, couple of dozen that he has here, um, uh, how rare is uh, the churro sheep? I mean, it's, is his flock a, a good percentage of the population of churro sheep? We didn't say it's a good percentage just with this flock alone, but the other the other thing that gets um that doesn't get documented is the Navajo churro sheep producers that are raised in remote areas. So we don't truly know the exact number and percentage that the Navajos currently have in terms of churro. Right now, we know for a fact that there has been a, a fluctuation in the breeding of the churro, the Navajo churro on the reservation. Although some of our breeding practices and animal husbandry practices have also been, I guess there's been conflicting views from the Western world and also from the Navajo perspective. So sometimes those interfere or um, people might change their, their ram out and you know it changes the, the, the breed standards or the, the, the pure Navajo churro. Uh, from what it was previously, say if they brought another breed in other than Navajo Turo, then it would change the flock and so forth. And so it changes the, the, the generation that it uh, that the ram would eventually provide, right? So right now, um, I'm not confident enough to say what percentage Ron's flock is, but at least I know of a f- very few Navajo sheep producers and ranchers who have large numbers 
there's a, been a huge decline in sheep shepherding, uh, in breeding and acquiring sheep. Although I do get, um, how do you say, um, inquiries or uh, people asking or they have curiosities about the sheep. So through our offices and through our um, organization, we have that ability to communicate with those that are interested to refer them to these ranchers so that they can provide starter flocks for them. And so within the last few years, I've been able to see that sort of in slightly increase. So that gives me hope that there, the percentage is somewhat uh, increasing, although there's been a huge debate what really truly defines a Navajo churro breed versus the Navajo churro, or no, I'm sorry, the churro breed, which is the Spanish breed. So it depends on the sheep herder you're talking to and the, the region you're in, and it depends on the preference of the rancher where they want to go with the flock. Most of the times, uh, the ranchers or the either breed for the wool or they breed for the meat, or it could be they could be breeding for the dairy. So you know you have to understand what you want out of your flock, and so our organization provides resources to understand what you truly want out of your flock. So if you're a weaver, a Navajo weaver, you would be breeding churro because it has excellent fleece and its durability, and of course wool is multi-purpose and um, you could use it just about anything. It's um, waterproof, fire retardant, um, keeps you warm during the winter. For the meat, you know, the Navajo churro is known to have its mild flavor. It doesn't have a very gamey taste. It's got very low lanolin, so you, it doesn't affect the meat at all. Uh, the the bones and stuff like that, there's history that the Navajo has had once used it for tools, and I'm sure you can still do it to this day if you acquired the practices for it or the skills for it, I mean. As it started to get dark at the sheep camp, I talked with Reginald Gardenez. He's the youngest in the family. You were telling me a story earlier about uh, running into a bear. Um, can you tell Can you tell that story for me again? Well, um, yeah. I was out there and, um, taking the goats to the sheep close to the cliffs. We headed back north from the cliffs of the the mountain and um, next time the goats and sheep was running like crazy. I came up on Monday and it was like a big old cinnamon colored grizzly bear which they don't belong up there you know. We get along with black bears you know. But yeah I had my little companion with me knuckles. I yelled and all that when I seen him. Five foot on all four, on all four, but you know, like imagine that if it stands up to you, it'd be about 10, 12 foot high. Uh, did they, did it kill any sheep? Yes, they, two of them intervened. Well, they came out in the flock, the sheep, they came out in the flock right there after the goats and sheep took off and they kind of intervened, sort to say, yeah, they killed about two of them in front of me. The little land survived because, you know, my little puppy took off with them back to the sheep camp, you know, but it was sad, you know, sad to see that happen, you know. I wish that very well, you know, because <laughs> I don't think it's alive now. It's hard, you know, it's hard to kill another four-legged, you know, when you're taking care of another four-legged, you know.
I love my life about the goats and sheep and we will carry on no matter what, you know, we'll be strong for them. That's us, Dana. We're strong for our goats and sheep. I wanted to ask you about that story you were you were telling me down at the corral. What was it? It was about how I got started? Yeah, well, oh. well how how did you get started herding sheep? Um, actually it went through my mom and dad, you know. Close to the Arizona borderline, it's called a red wash. My mom, I used to herd sheep out, you know, out there. We have a hogan, a beautiful one. And my dad would be on the other side, on top of the hill, you know, towards on this side of the Shiprock, New Mexico side. And he'd be flashing his mirror to herd, and that's how they got to meet. That's how we got this big old grazing land, you know, you know, thank God to that. <laughs> I mean, we got big old grazing rights, you know. Winter to summer, you know, all the way up to the mountains, all the way to the flats behind Shibrat Rock. I mean, we're blessed with that, you know, from that, from my mom and dad, you know. And we're, you know, carrying on my, my dad's dream and my mom's dream, she's still around. That's how they got to meet, you know, through, I guess, SOS or something with the mirrors. <laughs> now we got cell phones, so they didn't have it back then, but I guess they had mirrors, <laughs> which is pretty nice, you know, pretty interesting, you know, that how they got to meet. Yeah. And, that, that, with the mirror, that was his way of, like, flirting or just yeah, saying... Yeah, with my mom, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and then she flirted back at a certain time, you know, because... Where she was at, um, the sun sets real quick, you know, because they're right, it's a big old hill, Hogan down below. So she has a certain time for them to chit chat through, you know, SOS or through the mirror. Well, you know, they didn't have phones back then, so, you know. I had a really good time at the sheep camp. Ron and the family were very hospitable hosts. When we first arrived, he and Daisy were making tortillas on the fire, and they made green chili tortilla burgers for my parents, Aretta and I, and we stayed pretty much all day. And when it got dark, there was probably nine or ten of us standing around a fire telling stories and drinking coffee. <laughs> I put no, no, I'm going slug. to be halfway home and I'm like, <laughs> oh. <Yeah. laughs> can, you, can you tell me about your coffee kettle here? Um, I think the coffee kettle has some kind of magic power oh. or something. That's why the coffee's so good. Well, this coffee pot has been to every sheep camp from from the desert sheep camp to the mountain sheep camp, so and that's why it's so black and it's always sitting in the fire. And <clears throat> I think uh, the, the smoke from the fire adds flavor to it also. And then the water also it's, it makes a big difference. So this coffee pot has been around for I don't know how many years now. Yeah. Like maybe since the 70s-ish? <clears throat> or before that. Or before yeah, that, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I got my shoes 
thank you to Aretta Begay for making this episode possible. And thanks to my parents for coming with me. And thank you so much to the Garnanez family for hosting all of us and sharing your stories. If you want to see photos from this sheep camp, they are on ToastedSisterPodcast.com and the Toasted Sister Facebook and Instagram page. This is the Toasted Sister Podcast. I'm Andy Murphy. Mm-hmm.